Our first question for our Q&A time says, I heard a member of your Bible class say that we need to experience God. What does that mean? And would you please give some examples? Thank you. So when I think about that, the place my mind always goes first is this uh, quotation out of Second Testimony, page 130, experience. What is experience? And it goes, if we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here's a great danger of many. They have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are new and ever liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If, they, if these dissent, that is all that's needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be sickly as babes, walking by others' light, living by others' experience, feeling as others feel, acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in that of others. They are merely shadows of those who they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. That's a pretty profound statement. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last days. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. This is back to that immature. They can't discern for themselves. They need an authority to tell them the answer. They are not spiritual, for spiritual things are spiritually discerned. They are not wise in the things which relate to the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. Send the angel, said the angel, cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. A noble self-reliance is needed in the Christian experience and warfare. Men, women, and youth, God requires you to possess moral courage, steadiness of purpose, fortitude, and perseverance. Now look at this. Minds that cannot take the assertions of another, but will investigate for themselves before receiving or rejecting, that will study and weigh evidence and take it to the Lord in prayer. If you lack wisdom, let him ask the Lord who will give without um, finding fault. Give liberally. But there's a condition. He must ask in faith and not waver. So what did you hear there? Minds, I love this, minds that cannot take the assertion of others. In other words, you have so conditioned your mind to think for yourself, to weigh the evidences, to come to your own conclusions. Your mind naturally doesn't accept what somebody says. It hears it, but then it, but will investigate for themselves before receiving or rejecting, uh, will study and weigh evidence and take it to the Lord in prayer. Your mind simply doesn't take what somebody else says, what I say, what the pastor says, what Dr. So-and-so from the NIH says, the expert, what CNN, Fox News, whomever. Your mind cannot do it. It just cannot accept it until you investigate. When I give my book, could it be the simple out to my patients and I can't tell you how many thousands I've given away over the years? I always say there's only one rule. Don't believe anything because it's written in a book. 
Just because it's in the book doesn't make it so. When you read this, don't believe it because it's in a book. Don't believe it because I wrote it. You need to read it, think about it for yourself, and only believe it when you've weighed the evidence, come to your own conclusion, and realize it's true. Then you can believe it. And that's what this is talking about. Having an experience for yourself requires you to exercise your God-given abilities to weigh, evaluate, conclude, and then experiment. Meaning, make a choice. And then evaluate the outcome of that choice update your decision-making, and even with good motives, doing your best, because we're finite, we can still make a wrong choice that is not an evil choice. It's just not the most efficient choice. We may not have all the information we need to make the choice at this point. The doctors who bled George Washington when he had pneumonia were not making an evil choice. They were making a bad medical choice because they didn't have all the information. So examples of experiences with God, studying some aspect of God's creation for yourself, prayerfully, connecting the various dots from Scripture, seeing how those principles work out in some aspect of nature that you're studying, and in your heart expressing appreciation for God and talking to them about how those methods you're seeing in nature might apply to your life, and then applying them. Studying God's design laws, such as the law of liberty, and then applying the law of liberty in how you treat others and leaving others free to have a different attitude towards you, leaving other free to have their own, to, to love you or reject you, to like you or hate you. Hey, they're free. You're responsible for governing yourself in a godly way, not for how they think of you. So you practice the law of liberty, truth, love, and liberty. Taking problems to the Lord, seeking his wisdom, spend quiet time listening for the Holy Spirit to convict and guide, but then making a choice, acting on that choice, and trusting God with how it turns out. That's an experience. Well, this strengthens our faith. Look for God's interventions and deliverances. Do what you already know God would have you do. For some, it means forgiving somebody you haven't forgiven your whole life, but also not trusting them because they remain untrustworthy. So I, I'm not angry. I just don't trust. I'm not resentful. I just don't open myself up for exploitation. That's what it might mean. You already know that's needed. So these are examples of how you have experience with God. Okay, next, next question. How would you explain Peter's vision in Acts 10 about the unclean meats uh, to a non-Christian? Uh, they are telling me that it is solid proof that we can eat anything. Thank you so much. Well, first off, um, this uh, vision is not about food. So um, I, I tend never to, to talk about this. And they are correct in the biblical principle that ceremonial um, meat issues were done away with, and that's the purpose of this vision. Ceremonial differences between people, uh, Jew and not Jew, clean and unclean ceremonial things is what's being talked about here. And so the ones who want to use this about you can eat anything, the biblical principle is anything can be eaten and it's not ceremonially unclean anymore. And that's exactly true. So my approach is simply to say all the ceremonial stuff that determined whether something ceremonially clean or unclean was done away with at the cross. You're exactly right. And then I just simply ask a very straightforward question. Were the laws of health done away with at the cross? The Bible is not speaking about nutrition, laws of health. It's simply speaking about ceremony. That's it. Okay? And so it is perfectly ceremonially okay for you to have a poison ivy salad. There's none in the scripture that prohibits it. But why don't you? Because it's not healthy. And so as soon as I get people to understand the laws of health, then you can show them it's so overwhelming these days that the healthiest approach is either a plant-based diet or a Mediterranean diet with fish as your primary um, animal protein source if you're going to eat animal protein. And, and, but then at the end of the day, you leave everyone free to decide for themselves. Uh, 
Next, um, Dr. Jennings, Jesus is part of the Trinity. I was told by the church that he was uh, both human and God on earth. Um, How disrespectful and foolish is Satan to ask God to worship him? If you said that Jesus was quoting the scripture not to convert Satan, this is when we talked about his temptations, I said uh, Jesus wasn't quoting scripture to convert Satan because Satan wasn't uh, open to conversion. Um, This appears to me that Satan is beyond repair, so why didn't Jesus just use this opportunity to destroy him or warning him not to harm his people? Instead, Jesus went on to his ministry, cast out demons, but preserved them. Yes, because um, uh, Jesus isn't the source of destruction. Jesus is not the source of death. Jesus is the source of life. Sin is the source of death. And so Jesus is not the one who actually is going to use power to exterminate any wicked person in the end. And it would actually be contrary to God's character. He did not came, he said, I have not come to destroy or condemn. I came to save. And so his mission was not to come to destroy, but to expose Satan as a liar and fraud, to destroy the devil and his power, it says, but not destroy him with using might to just put him down because that only then incites fear of God and actually keeps the rebellion going. He destroys him through truth and love. And, that's, and, that's, and that was his purpose. A young adult attending my Sabbath school class is a nicotine addict by choice and repeatedly shares his view that God is not so petty as to keep him out of heaven because of his choice to smoke as he enjoys smoking. He also uses bad language and and confesses that he does not have time to read the Bible. My attempts to reason with him through design law perspective fall on deaf ears, or maybe it's a lack of, of comprehension. He believes in God and knows that God loves him, but I suspect the, tra- uh, hit the training in a Christian high school uh, he attended left him with a very legal view of God. Could you please suggest an approach I could use to help him understand the issue that it is not God keeping him out of heaven on, on his level? Thank you. Well, first off... Um, you have to recognize the, the landscape of what you're dealing with. There's an old rule, and that is in golf, and it applies here, you play the ball where it lies. You have to understand this guy's attitude, heart, what he's open to, what he's not open to. Uh, he is, uh, approaching him on his behaviors is a lost cause. You should not approach him on his behaviors. If you approach him on his behaviors, he's only going to get defensive, and he's going to turn it back on you as being judgmental and like all the others that have always judged him in the past. And so I think what's happening with this guy, you have to make a judgment first. Is this guy somebody who is spiritually mature and is is actually not at peace, and he is looking for the answer, Jesus, but he doesn't realize what he's really looking for, and that's how the Holy Spirit often draws people. They don't even know what they're looking for. They're looking for something. Okay? Do you perceive him that way? Really genuinely searching, but he doesn't know what he's searching for. And some of his behavior is designed to protest the legal stuff that you suggested he was conditioned with. Or, or is it your judgment that this person is already fully hardened against the Lord and he actually is being used by the devil to simply antagonize and stir up problems? Um, either way, you have to make a judgment on what you're dealing with. Okay, yeah, we encourage you to prayerfully make that judgment. If you don't have enough information, then you test the waters. You test the waters by how you interact with him and you watch with his responses. And, the, and, the, and I can't tell you specifically what you're dealing with because I haven't met him and I haven't talked to him. Okay? But the approach I would take is I would inquire from him, ask him some questions. Um, uh, what is your understanding of the sin problem? What is sin? And what is the solution for sin? Ask him. See where he's at. See what kind of answers he gives. Ask him why he's coming to your church. Why are you coming? What's your goal? What do you want to achieve by coming here? Free potluck every week? Looking for a meal? 
I know people, when church that I attended many years ago, that had a free pot together, people that came every week just for the meal. That's why they came there. They got their free meal once a week. They could care less what was taught. They could care less, but they showed up because they could get a free meal once a week. Okay, is that why he's there? What's his purpose in being there? And so once you get some of his answers, those answers will inform you of where you need to go. Your goal is to draw a cognitive. He's, he's going to challenge you. Um, if you uh, my, my suspicion is, ask him about this plan of salvation, what sin is, he'll give you some answers. If you ask him why he's there, he'll turn it on you. My, my suspicion is he'll attack you in some way. Well, I'm here. I'm here because, because this is supposed to be a church where people love other people. And I thought I would be welcomed here. But I'm getting the feeling like I'm not welcomed here like every other Christian group. And I thought you would be different than the other Christian group. And that's why I was here to see if anybody really has a love of Jesus. I suspect he'll turn it if you ask him why he's there. But I don't know him. I'm just reading in between the lines. If he does, if he does, um, it, it is an evidence of a very immature person. And if he does that, you turn it back on him. And you say, well, of course we love you, but we love you too much to sit by quietly while we see you destroying yourself. That's what love does. Love gently points out areas that you can improve upon. I'm having questions. See what your goals are here. You seem uncomfortable. Make his discomfort. And, his, uh, and, and by the way, you don't bring his behavior in unless his behavior violates reasonable boundaries. If he tries to light up in your church, you have to set a boundary and ask him to step outside. Or if he tries to light up in your home, you say, well, you can smoke, and that's okay. We don't judge you for it, but you don't smoke in my house or my car. You set reasonable boundaries where, uh, about what you're... And if he curses, if he's cursing in front of the children, then you have to call him aside and say, I'm sorry, we have children here, and if you want to use that language, then you're not going to be able to be part of our, our, our group until the children are gone. And we don't mind, we can deal with that, but the children can't. You have responsibilities. So you set those types of boundaries. So, but I suspect he's purposely being a little antagonistic because he's trying to test the waters to see whether you guys will uh, treat him judicial, treat him judgmentally, or you'll treat him with acceptance. So, so really don't focus on the behaviors unless he's really violating uh, boundaries that have to be set. And then, and then have some exp, uh, exploration of his, of his motives and see where he's at, and then go from there. So in, in one of my blogs, um, uh, it says... Um, in my blog on the King of North, King of the South, um, verse 41 of Isaiah, excuse me, of Daniel 11, um, he will invade the beautiful land, many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon um, will be delivered into his hand. In your blog, King of the North versus King of the South, um, let's see, um, Moab and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered into the hand. You say that Edom, descendants of Esau, Moab and Ammon, descendants of Lot, were nomadic and represented people who did not join with fixed human nations and governments, thus those who retain their independence, liberty, and freedom, uh, and therefore think for themselves, do not go along with the merging of church and state and will not come under the power of the king of the north. Can you expand on this? please, and how this might relate to those who remove themselves from the current government or become sovereign nationals by uh, reconvening uh, to the land common law. First off, um, this is an attitude of mind and authority over self. That what I'm talking about here is people who don't, do not surrender their individuality or their decision-making to the state, and they don't compromise their principles to go along with the state. It is not that they remove themselves from their national identity. Paul in the New Testament would be an example of this. He did not compromise and go along with Roman law when it violated the principles of God, but he also did not deny his Roman citizenship. And so I'm not talking about denying our citizenship. It's simply that we don't conform to um, um, laws of any nation state that violate the principles of God and how we live our lives and how we treat others. 
we, may, we maintain our godly independence. Uh, second part of the question is, I, f- I, f- I still feel fear when I think of the end times and I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to deal with all this horrible stuff going on uh, now, like um, Monopoly. Um, can I please, uh, pa- like Monopoly, can I pe- please pass jail and go straight to heaven? <laughs> is it really selfish to want to bypass the bad stuff? No, I don't think it's selfish to want to bypass the bad stuff. I don't think when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, if there's another way, um, it's not selfish to want a way that does not cause pain and suffering. I don't think that's selfish at all. It would be selfish, though, to compromise principles uh, to avoid the difficulties. That's when the selfishness comes in. But, but it, 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 you don't find Jesus at the cross saying, oh, this is such a fun weekend. Can we do it again next weekend? Okay, that is not, that not at all. It was an agonizing, torment, tortuous event. It was, no, it was not enjoying the experience. It was the joy set before him, not the joy of the event, okay, that he went through the cross. And so, no, it's not wrong to want to avoid the bad stuff. And, and this is why we don't tempt the, uh, the, the enemies of God to persecute us. Uh, and we, we have counsel about that. Don't, don't antagonize and don't tempt them and don't poke your finger in their eye and don't uh, cause more... Um, you know, uh, yourself to be more of a focus until the Lord's, Lord called the focus to that circumstance. And, and so I, I don't think that's wrong. Why is the Bible written through the punitive law lens instead of the design law lens? It seems to encourage more image, uh, the image of God that Satan is presenting. Uh, most, much of that, I won't say all of it, but much of that is the translators. Uh, all the translations have been done since, uh, since Constantine converted and since the imperial law lands and since Roman law became the, the view of the world. And so much of this, uh, this penal view is the language in which it's, uh, tr- uh, the, 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 the translators bring a lot of this in in the way they translate. Um, both the language itself, especially in English, which has a Latin base and has a, a lot of legal, like justification, propitiation. You get to heaven and you ask Paul, hey, explain what you meant by justification. Paul's going to go, I, I don't know that word. Uh, what, what is that word? I've never heard of it. I never used it. Okay. Paul did not use language like that. He used Greek. And the Greek language, dikaio, uh, dikasune, uh, and, and, and these other words, justification or justify means righteous and righteousness and rightify. It means putting right. It means to set right things. That's all it means. I, I was talking about God through Jesus was setting things right with himself, fixing the damage. That's, that's all. But justification, propitiation, and expiation, and, and all these, uh, these, these terms that have a legal sound to them, they come in through the Latin and through the translations to a great degree. There is some, some aspect where you will find some aspects of, of God using law in the Old Testament. And why did he do it? For the same reason a parent has a rule for their children to brush their teeth. Because they were disorderly. Because they were out of, out of uh, they were destroying themselves. Because without some external structure, um, the, the plan of salvation would have been obstructed by, by Satan's interference. And so God was working to set some structure to keep open the plan of salvation, but it was never a plan. Uh, and this is why Paul says in the New Testament that the law is righteous if one uses it properly, but the law was not given for the righteous, it was given for the wicked, for the murderer. Why? Because through the law, I become, uh, become aware of my, my sin condition, and, and it leads me to the Savior for healing. So the law was given in the Old Testament in the same way MRI was made for doctors and hospitals. It exposes disease. And then once your disease is exposed in the MRI, it leads you to the doctor to get healing. But there is no healing in the MRI. There's no healing in the written law. It was given to expose it, and that's its purpose. But, but once you have the wrong law lens and you misconstrue and you think God was giving a, a legal system. It says... Um, uh, how did you unlearn your military training? Uh, well, uh, unlearn, I think you, we're talking about what we talked about here, how do I see myself? Through. It was actual prayerful and painful. 
um, seeing the methods of the world being practiced by my nation, inconsistent with what I understand Jesus would do, and, and studying God's word, and by beholding Christ more and more and making him my object, I, I realized that there were practices and methods that this nation state was using, that America was using, that were not consistent with God. And studying the revelation, I realized that, that the United States would become part of a beastly system in the end, a war against God, and so I couldn't keep my affections on my nation and identify as an American when America is going to be part of the world wide beastly system in the end that have to be part of God's kingdom and ultimately there's two groups in the end the sheep and the goats how can one read a passage in the Bible on white where a penalty wrath vengeance and repay how can one read it okay so um, you have to understand these terms and how they're being used you have to understand first always go back when you read difficult passages say what law lens am I looking for you have a premise how do you understand the language how do you what's the premise of God's law is God the creator his laws are design laws or is he a rule maker and an authoritarian judge who inflicts penalties that premise will then determine how you understand these things if you understand the, the design law lens then all the other passages of Scripture start dropping in and making perfect sense. The wrath of God is being reeled against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans 1.18. And they, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. The wrath of God is God letting go and giving up. This is what the Bible teaches. And it teaches it in many places. And the penalty, um, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. And so again, design law teaches that when you sin, you separate yourself from the channel of blessing and the result is suffering, pain, and death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, not from God, reap destruction. So you will find from a design law lens all the, all the texts fit beautifully. Let's see. Um, could the reason God asked Moses to take the rod with him to speak to the rock be for him not to be tempted beyond his ability and the remembrance of what God did for him in the past with the rod, he was actually holding in his hand the physical product of God's power over him. Sure, absolutely could be. All right, how do we um, put the design law view into so many passages in the Bible in Ellen White that use the words penalty, vengeance, wrath? I think I just answered that question already. So let's go ahead and close our prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, uh, that you are a God of love and truth, the creator God who has created all the universe to operate in harmony with your character and methods. We ask that your spirit will enlighten and transform us and make us effective in taking this message to the world that so desperately needs it. We pray in your holy name. Amen.